This is the one with a cultivated sense of urgency. An Einstein impersonator. Jelly babies. And two, two little, little doctors, doctors skipping with some rope. One checks you over, the other gives you hope. hope. It's, it's called, called. <laughs> <laughs> Robots. Here we go. We're embarking on a voyage all through time and all through space. Counting Daleks, Thalanthood, and the Cybertronic race. Sontarans look like taters and Silurians all have wonky scales. And the Doctor has a TARDIS. We're reviewing all his tales. Who back when? Reviewing all of who there is. Who back when? Subscribe and read on iTunes, please. Episode by episode, we're trudging down this temporal road. Come join us on this odyssey. What other choice could there be than who back when? Who back when? Hello everyone out there in podcast land, welcome to another episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Or Doc Past. Indeed, we are here today to review Tom Baker's first ever episode of Doctor called Robot, which we have dubbed C-075. That's right, holy moly. Who are you? I am Jim. Hello Jim. Those dulcet tones, who do they belong to? Oh, they belong to me. Thank you very much. I'm Leon. Hello, Podcast Land. Hello, Leon. <laughs> podcast Land, say hello to Leon. Ah, oh, so nice of you. Hello to you too. We have just finished recording our bonus Third Doctor retrospective, so if we sound like we are one vodka and orange juice into this recording, that's why. <laughs> very quick, top level. Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> oh, Tom yes. Baker. It has taken us five years and a bit, <laughs> but is, we got there. This is why you started this podcast, <laughs> isn't it? This is certainly why I loved Doctor Who to begin with. It's all thanks to Tom Baker, and I think most people would credit Tom Baker. He is he is the iconic classic Doctor, at least the, the most famous classic Doctor. Should we say that? I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. shit on any other classic Doctors. We, we, he does we, not disappoint. Do, do we need a little pause for you to compose yourself? Give everyone a little bite-sized chunk of of who. who. Oh, let's do that. (laughs) Time for us to synopsize, lobify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brew and listen to this overview. This free-for-all we like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Bite-sized chunk of who. There's a new doctor in town, and his name's Harry Sullivan. He's a medical officer with UNIT, and he's here to look after the titular doctor who's getting to grips with a new body after messing the last one up pretty badly. Meanwhile, there are attacks happening all over, and it looks like someone is trying to get their hands on a disintegrator gun. The Doctor has to come to terms with his new self very quickly in order to help Sarah Jane and Una investigate. A think tank organisation seems to be at the heart of everything, and Sarah Jane goes into full-on reporter mode. Something smells fishy when she comes across a supposedly abandoned research lab for a robot, but surely it isn't connected to the aforementioned attacks, and she is reassured there most definitely isn't a killer robot on the loose. Would the Doctor agree, though? Does he even care, or is he about to plop off into space-time? Or could he whip up a bucket of robot flu to save the day? Watch and or listen to find out. Biscal over, you are welcome. Aren't you just so different from prior Doctor Who? Do you not feel that? I did. I, d- I certainly feel... I feel the Doctor being very different. I, yeah, okay. I don't, actually, I don't know so much about the setup. You know what? You're right. Sorry. Yeah. You're totally right. Sorry, I, I won't even cut you off. Please correct me now. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I haven't experienced the other classic regenerations. Uh, from what I understand, they're downplayed a little bit, maybe, compared to... 
this? I think probably in terms of structure, this is almost identical to the previous one. Oh, okay. So the the last one being the Speared from Space, the Doctor has just regenerated, he's very discombobulated, he isn't quite himself, and he spends a good chunk of his first episode just showering and stealing clothes. Right. And in this one, he also is quite discombobulated, spends most of the time figuring out who he is, and then eventually his genius catches up with him and he saves the day. He helps the unit and so on. Other than that, the Doctor is completely different. Just his face. His face is incredible. (laughs) There are multiple moments, but, you know, I, I can picture two or three where Tom Baker just beams out a grin <laughs> with his wide eyes and you're just like well this is just like i'm, I'm smiling because he's smiling yeah this, this is just <laughs> so different yeah he, he just grabs you so quickly and also there are two sequences in this four-part serial in which he just puts his feet up and yeah and they feel supremely tom bakery and very different from the Pertwee serials that we've just seen. One is in the Jeep, where he awkwardly puts his feet up out of the Jeep, (laughs) which is just, oh, you're my hero. (laughs) We've been using chairs the wrong way all this time. And the second one is, I've put this down in my notes as well, like, God, I love Tom Baker's Doctor. Stops countdown, puts feet on nuclear Armageddon computer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd internally noted those. I hadn't actually written them down, but I was having a little thought. It might have been actually while I was peeing. Okay. But maybe that's too much information. No, no, keep talking um, about that. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> he has a way of kind of commanding, which I think is the way I, I like the Doctor. I think, I think it's maybe more the way New Who has the Doctor. Maybe with the exception of Eccleston. Okay. Who is a bit more angry and in your face, perhaps. Okay. But yeah. to me, the Doctor is a bit more with whimsy and just knows stuff. Like, he, she is intelligent and commands respect through their actions and their compassion and their intellect. Um, and with a lot of humour. Yeah, and a lot of times that is that is the case. And this is what I get immediately from Baker's Doctor. Yeah. Is people aren't doing stuff. Like, even, like, Bagels is actually a bit disrespectful to him quite a few times in this Oh, this yeah, serial, definitely. Which I, I think probably happens quite a bit because... I think he's probably just a little bit distrusting. And, and uh, I think he says as much in this episode, Bagel says as much that the Doctor antagonizes him a bit, but he likes having him there. But in this episode, you see as soon as he's kind of got his shit together, he may be throwing little oddball comments in. He may be putting his feet up on Jeeps and yeah. uh, and <laughs> countdown clocks or whatever, you know, but he knows his shit. Like he does the science stuff well. He verbalizes things well, better than science stuff <laughs> that i just said <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a different kind of commanding like we've we've just done respect the retrospective with pertwee yeah and he was literally karate chopping people to get them to stop doing stuff he I, is often very clever i mean pertwee was often very clever as well sorry to cut you off there but when he did it w- it just seemed a bit flashier yeah this one this doctor he will outwit you and, and outsmart you and probably best you in some way but when he does that he's kind of humble about it yeah even when he mocks you he's humble about it <laughs> I, I feel like he's just gonna end everything with a big smile and then yeah, you're and just like offer you jelly babies yeah it's like <laughs> all right then <laughs> <laughs> i can't stay mad at you yeah. fourth doctor 
I mean, would you go as far as to say, like, Pertwee's Doctor is, is, there's a certain arrogance there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which... There's, a, there's machismo in the third Doctor, which yeah. I don't see in the fourth Doctor. The third Doctor is the jock with a good heart, whereas the fourth Doctor is head of the chess club. <laughs> <laughs> but also a bit of the, the quirky loner kid who's quite cool. Yeah, also, yeah. absolutely. Who doesn't care if people mock him or, you know, think yeah. he looks weird. He's the nerd who's proud and self-aware. Yeah. And that it really, really works. Which I guess, you know, I, I don't want to put too much kind of emphasis on this because I don't want to stereotype everyone. But obviously, sci-fi fans have a certain stereotype. Sure. That is generally a nerd. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe that's why a lot of people love this Doctor and not necessarily identify with him. But it's, it's kind of what you imagine you could be. Like, yeah. if you really I don't, uh, don't know where I'm going with this no no I know what you're trying to say an offshoot of that argument is also like if you see heroes of yours on on tv and film what have you or you read about them even if it's not someone that you realistically can see yourself growing into let's say you're a kid you watch Tom Baker and you go I, he's not that dissimilar from me we have similar mannerisms we're both quick we both sort of don't really fit in I might grow up to be Tom Baker or Tom Baker's doctor. Yeah. Do you think that same kid would look at Pertwee's doctor and go, I wish I'd grow up to be that badass? I I think they would probably put him more on a hero pedestal, perhaps. Okay. Maybe do aspire a little bit to be that, but you don't expect to get there. Yeah. Like, you, I don't think you would ever expect to take routes that would get you there. Yeah, okay, no fair. Maybe that's the thing, you know, like you said, like Baker, you can think, I could grow up to be that i guess in, in some ways he's he's a bit of an eccentric scientist that's kind of what if you wanted to really boil it down to something 100 percent. which i guess you can kind of boil the doctor down to that in a lot of like, someone who's very compassionate scientific bit nerdy bit, yeah. qu- bit quirky you know and we've only got one serial so far but you can kind of see that in in baker's doctor so much already yeah yeah which i i think is you know incredible you know it's incredible writing it's I don't know so much about directing but there's obviously some direction there to get all these I'm sure there actors is. To, to get stuff. But, it, you know, you have to say a lot of it is Baker himself. I mean, Tom Baker has himself said that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing at this point, but when asked, I'm sure I've seen an interview with him where when asked how he decided to play the Doctor, he just went, I, I didn't. I just did myself. Right. Um, and I think that shows in the sense that I can't claim to have seen all of Tom Baker's serials. I, I think I probably did watch most of them, but most of those I've now forgotten because I was a child. Yeah. But my impression of him, and I think even the impression of the fourth Doctor in general among people who have never seen him, is this one fairly homogenous characterization you know he he doesn't he doesn't change personality over the course of what is the longest running single doctor in the history of doctor who so what he does now it worked so well he's he stuck with it you know yeah that's what i mean there is i'm sure direction and he is a fantastic actor in general but most of this is his personality i think yeah which is interesting actually because we've we've kind of said as much about pertwee yeah, that, that, that's he's, true. that he's influencing a lot of the character himself. Whether whether it's his personality, I don't know if we, we got quite so far but, to say that. No, that's true. But then weirdly, Pertwee went on to do like Wurzel Gummidge and well, Super yeah. Ted, whereas, I mean, other Tom Baker things are, either he's narrated stuff, and even when he's narrating stuff, you can't help but picture him as the fourth Doctor narrating stuff. <laughs> yeah. But 
Otherwise, like he shows up in Black Adder. Does he? And he's Tom Baker in Black Adder. Oh, sorry. He's a crazy. Yeah, oh, oh, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I, yeah, sorry. I'm in Tom Baker. I mean, anything that you see him in, he is this incredibly warm hearted Tom Baker. Yeah. I, I think the, the one that always jumps into my mind is, is voiceovering Little Britain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that, that's iconic. Kind of modern day Tom Baker. I don't, yeah, I don't know if he was quite that bonkers. <laughs> whilst he was, he was doing Doctor Who, certainly not at the start. Like, he seems to have reached a whole new height. <laughs> Yeah. As he's got older. Recently uh, published his first novel. Oh, very good, very good, Mr. Baker. Yeah. Congratulations. Wait, hang on. I'm going to look it up. I'm just going to uh, toast that fact with a jelly bean. <laughs> oh, do. It is, in fact, a Doctor Who novel. I've just looked it up. It's called Scratchman, or possibly Scratchman. Wow. Yeah. So we are just waxing lyrical about Tom Baker. Tom Baker. Maybe we should focus a little bit on the serial itself. On the serial itself. Can, can I say something before we jump into the story of this? Okay. The serial itself starts with something that is also iconic to me, the intro sequence. And then once again, the outro sequence, I got goosebumps looking at those because I remember them so well from when I was a child. Obviously, it's a new intro sequence. It has Tom Baker's face in it. But the way that it is structured is also different. We get to see the TARDIS in this one, which we never got to see before. The colors are just so refreshingly gorgeous and i remember very very vividly the outro sequence which in my mind i had conflated with the intro sequence but the outro sequence which is just sort of this marble collage of a vortex you know it's it's beige and brown and and white it's it's very marbly to me it feels kind of like toffee (laughs) also to be iconic of the fourth doctor very good you're much more reserved than i was oh i was was quite happy to lose pertwee's outline in the vortex oh really (laughs) they're just standing still outline (laughs) (laughs) this this is much better (laughs) oh good (laughs) so the episode itself Episode itself was both very good in terms of just introducing characters. Yeah. And hilariously unstructured at times. <laughs> and sort of forced at times. Do you want to elaborate on this point? Okay. You added the, the line, a cultivated sense of urgency. Uh, yes. To the intro. That's very much the case in this episode with the whole uh, scientific research society subplot. There are so many occasions where they force a scene of tension just by having someone run into a room with no reason or having someone revisit the location with no reason or... Do you know what I'm saying? Everyone go to the same pile of oil and go, oh, this is oil. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This must mean there's a robot here. (laughs) So in that regard, in some instances, it, it felt very forced but it worked. And also showing, I mean, I, I showed a clip of it to Miriam when I was watching it, of the robot. I showed a clip of it. I, I watched part of this on my lunch break at work. Yeah. And I showed a clip of that to one of my colleagues. And he also just went like, what the hell are you watching? <laughs> and I, I think on the surface, this looks like a really silly episode, but it's... Oh, fuck it. oh God. I'm sorry, I, I'm clearly biased because I love Tom Baker and this is where we get to meet him. No, so. I, I kind of know why you're all over the shop with it as well. Like, it, it's mostly positive. I mean, the, <laughs> the doc, the, sorry, the robot going from gigantic killer machine to childish caveman to King Kong. King Kong. Uh, <laughs> it's in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's in your notes. <laughs> oh, it's in mine too. There is no structure to what this robot is, why this robot was created, what its motivations are. It changes its own motivations halfway through. It goes from protecting mankind to, I must destroy mankind. 
to be fair, it's told to change that. Although I don't know why it had this. Well, we know why it had the first one, but then the person that gave it the first one is shown to be a ju- double agent anyway. So you, yeah. don't, you don't know why he had the exactly. first one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you're right there. It's just, which I think quite often happens with Doctor Who stuff, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> as much as we love it. There's a good kind of thread of stuff through it. Yeah. But it's it's woven into a bit of a weird pattern, <laughs> and you you kind of have to shape some of it to get your full entertainment, or maybe just ignore bits here and there and just get swept up with stuff. Which is, I think, was what happened to me. Even even making notes, I think I I mostly got swept up for the ride. And I didn't really care that things were a bit stupid <laughs> in place. Like I I literally wrote at the end of the first episode when we first see the robot. You know what? This robot looks pretty cool because we only saw the head <laughs> and then when it's walking around then, you're like that's clearly just a dude in a suit <laughs> yeah so sort of started the second episode and had to kind of like maybe scratch the idea the robot looks good uh, did you like the fourth episode when it bends over and you can see the dude's pants <laughs> oh i think i missed that bit. but the thing is by the end of it i freaking love that robot it's wonderful yeah and i mean you end up really sympathizing and empathizing with this yeah. robot it t- okay so let's talk robot and then let's maybe swing back talk about SRS and let's swing back even further and talk about Tom Baker even more because I'm not talking about Tom Baker <laughs> okay but okay so talking about the robot that it starts off as it's just this it's a gigantic muscle machine yeah which was built for eg mining operations to take over hard manual labor tasks from humans because it is bigger and stronger to be fair, this is the spiel they give to Sarah Jane that may or may not be true. May or may not be true. True. A good point. But then, for some reason, it's also been given this living metal. <laughs> so that yeah. it, it, it's made out of metal, but it can grow. Which it then turns out only happens when you fire energy-based weapons at it. Because it absorbs the energy and then the metal grows. So, A, why would you build a machine that will outgrow you like literally outgrow you secondly it is a machine that only takes orders for example by feeding it information over a dia projector like an overhead projector this dude is an enemy (laughs) (laughs) all right i have injected ingested this information now (laughs) but it also has emotions complex emotions oh yeah free will even though i mean it struggles with that it also struggles with the concept of taking orders so which decision was made here? Did they make someone to inherit the earth or did they make something to just follow their orders? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I'm just going to have to kind of put my brain to the side a lot of the times when when they bring up this kind of technology in, yeah. in Doctor Who on earth. Cuz this this came in the Green Death as well. Like there was I'm sure I'm sure that was man-made as well. The, uh, boss yeah, yeah, that that was just an AI. Yeah, it was it was an AI that then got really clever and took over. Yeah, so we're in the same sort of territory here. This is this is a level of intelligence that they were speculating in a science fiction show in the seventies could happen on Earth that we in twenty nineteen are still decades, if not centuries, away from getting close. To uh, not just that. It's If you make up any stories nowadays with an AI, that AI goes out of control and it really just... It skynets, yeah. right? 
Whereas here, you create an AI, it has its own free will and thought and motivations and ambitions. It's going to grow physically and emotionally. But all it does is like maybe step on a few soldiers. <laughs> and that's it. It has no further reach. This is the creation and the complete and utter destruction of a potential species of intelligent life. Yeah. I, I thought that was um, a fair point, actually, isn't addressed. The, this doctor that we're starting to see... Yeah. Shouldn't he have cared? He should have cared. A bit more for the robot? Also, we don't have a lot to go on. (laughs) And he does at some point say that he he really cared for it. At the end, after he's thrown the bucket of robot flu at it. Yeah. Which, we should point out, this robot dies screaming in agony. (laughs) Mm. While the doctor is playing, uh, he's imitating like a medieval knight's uh, jousting or whatever. (laughs) At the end of it, he's just, he's laughing. And then he goes, no, I really did care for that guy. Yeah. He, he was a nice chap. But I had to destroy him. He was just too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a very hard thing to deal with in, in the Hooniverse, I yeah. think, in general. Because the Doctor obviously comes across a lot of big bads. And they have to be dealt with. But the Doctor is meant to be super compassionate and shouldn't really relish in killing things and destroying things but so a rewrite might have been what like reprogramming the robot i mean we're talking about a robot so that's obviously on the table that's true but is reprogramming it also maybe a way of destroying it like taking away from its personality yeah but i don't know rehabilitating it in some way this is too existential for (laughs) yeah okay that's true for me drinking vodka (laughs) (laughs) okay fine let's talk about the robot heists because I love oh. these robot heists. They are amazing. <laughs> I, okay. I'm going to throw one thing in there to see if it's, if it's still something you loved. Okay. The first heist we see... Which one is that? Is that the fact, shed robbery? Fact, maybe most of them. Um, no, I think he's actually attacking a guarded... Is there, I think it's a proper facility with, like, um, no admittance posters. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. He goes through with the, the... With the guard, fence. guard that starts shooting the seven-foot-plus robot... Literally, when it's two feet away. Yes. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Shit, you're a big robot. Bam, bam, bam. Um, yeah, we, we see all of this through robot vision. That's true. I like robot vision. Did you? Yeah. Like, I, I kind of did, but <laughs> my God, there was a lot of robot vision. And it's not that clear a thing to look through. No, that's true, but it is better than Dalek vision. It's better than most robot visions we've had so far, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I do kind of like the effect. I think yeah. I just didn't like how often it was used in that first. I mean, every sequence. single time we get to see a robot vision, it's because someone in the BBC prop department has either cut out a new stencil out of cardboard <laughs> or because they bought a new filter and they need an excuse to use it. I think, it, I think it worked in this one, but you're absolutely right that there are so many ridiculous sequences of this thing is enormous. <laughs> yeah. Why? It, it should not be able to sneak up on anyone. <laughs> no, you should hear it clomping down the stairs, clomping across a grassy field even because it's just like shaking well, especially when it's going like face f- when it's facing its adversaries or rather when its adversaries yeah. are facing it is yeah, what it's, I mean. it's not appearing around a corner it's no. just it's just marching across <laughs> the field in front of you there are two scenes that i've noted down in part one one is the the so-called tool shed break-in which is the I, I can't remember what it is he steals the second time around is this with the old dude in the telephone yeah, I think so. He's sitting down, his back against the door or whatever it is. And he puts a bar across it. Yes, exactly, uh, that yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah, that's a tool shed. Yeah. 
and <laughs> even to the point where the the boxes that then unit goes back into the shed with the doctors show what's been taken and they're just they're just little trays of like screws and stuff in them. great it's a tool shed yeah <laughs> and they're describing it as like this important secret weapon <laughs> hiding place and it's like what those those random boxes of bolts well, yeah. <laughs> and, and the one that had a single envelope marked top secret <laughs> I love that I love the top secret thing there's a similar one in I can't remember if it's part one or part two where I oh it's part two I incorrectly noted this as Chekhov's private notes in oh. my notes there's a thing hanging off the wall that just it's the last bit of part two and it's the previously on Doctor Who in part three and it's just a thing that says private notes Oh. Just blatantly private notes, but we never get to see what it is. And I thought that it was so in your face that it must factor in some way. Maybe someone's written in there like, oh, I feel vibrations in the ground or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I hear clomping outside. But okay, so yeah, there's the tool shed. And then there's another scene which isn't a break-in when Sarah Jane drives up to SRS. And we just see this from the point of view of the car. Oh, and a guard yeah. comes up and he just goes, yes, miss? I really wanted a robot claw to that, that point enter frame and the music to come back on again. And the robot's got just a little fake wig on it. Yeah. dress. Yes, miss. And wearing Sarah Jane's granny pearls. That would have been awesome. Um, yeah, we, we mentioned before on the retrospective that we kind of feel like they, they always have to establish a new feel for the show, I guess. Yeah. Every time we've got a new doctor. Do you think camera stuff is part of that? A hundred percent. Because there's a, there's a lot of zooming a in lot of this zo- serial. On well. the, I mean, Drew would hate this. There are zoom-ins on the countdown. Yes. On a few occasions. Th- there's one note in, I think it's episode four. Sorry, hang on. I'm checking my notes. I'm checking my notes. No, episode three. There's a very dynamic bit of camera work as they are they're leaving the SRS meeting and the camera is on the it's panning sideways from like it's doing sort of a a quarter circle from facing the the entrance slash exit of SRS as the robot is exiting and it's panning around as it's walking off screen and Sarah Jane and whoever else or maybe it's Hilda is running towards the camera and it seems it feels so much more cinematic than anything we've seen on Classic Who before. Uh-huh. Very, very cool scene, I thought. Beautifully done. See, episode three is where my note crops up as a negative for Ooh. someone found the camera zoom. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, th- I think it's happened quite a bit up to that point um, in previous episodes, but I think there's just it's probably like a, a three minute period where literally every scene Zoom. It zooms zoom, in. Zoom, zoom. So yeah. I, I can't remember the exact situation, but it, I know it definitely does a really obvious and annoying zoom. Cuts to then a scene with bagels on the other side of the Jeep. Okay. And they're, they're all outside the bunker. And it just zooms through the Jeep to bagels, who's like on a remote oh. radio device. And it's, it's just like... <laughs> This is not what Doctor Who normally does, and you haven't done it very well. <laughs> but you were trying. They were trying. I mean, they're, yeah. they're playing around. Maybe something on TV or in a movie around about the same time came out, and there was one instance of a really successful zoom-in effect, and they go, that's great. Put it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Needs more zoom. <laughs> the cowbell of the camera world. <laughs> Okay, wait, hang on. We need more heist commentary. I'm glad you said heist then. I thought you were <laughs> stuck on the Zoom thing. <laughs> How do you feel about the Ocean's Eleven style anti-heist where units 
puts the i can't remember what it is it's like some nuclear whatever power thingy or maybe it's the actual launch codes they put them inside a case inside a a cage behind some bars in a bunker we've we've got troops around the front we've got troops around the back there are troops around the side there are troops (laughs) up above you think that's hard (laughs) wait till you see the doberman pinches that we've parked on the side and then we've got this and we've got a tank outside it's fantastic did i mention the helicopter (laughs) (laughs) correct me if i'm wrong They've taken these things, or whatever. I can't remember what it is that they've hidden there. Is it? I think it's. Is that the launch codes? No, I think it's um, power source. This is still, yeah, the power source. I think this is still them getting the disintegrated gun stuff together. Right. Okay. I think this is the power source. So they've moved it to this very secure location, right? I'm not actually sure if they moved it. I can't remember. So is it they- normally stored there? Possibly. It seemed to be in a very safe place. I think it was in a very safe place, and they've gone to protect it. Or they've moved it into an even safer place and got to protect that. Right. Because if they've moved it, then that presupposes that not only does the robot know where they've moved it to, but it also presupposes that they are aware that the robot must know where it's been moved. Yeah, I don't know if you're meant to think too carefully about how the robot knows where all this (laughs) shit is. Like, I think up to this point, you're probably assuming, because the robot doesn't seem to have a lot of autonomy. uh, That there's any venture, really. Maybe there's an inside man or something. That that someone is saying, right, robot, go get this thing from here. Like, it doesn't know how to work anything out beyond that. That's fair. So, yeah, they they have... I mean, the alternative is that unit puts out, like, a full-page ad in the newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) And on Tuesday... We will um, be moving the... We will be moving... (laughs) The disintegrator. Via the the A4125. Maybe we'll come back to the doc stuff, shall we? Okay, sure. I've got another robot question for you. Okay, very well. This is robot prototype K1. Yeah, I... I, Did I mention that in the... It's, yeah, it's okay. called okay. Prototype Robot K1. Do you think there is any relation to another very famous K robot well, on Doctor Who? Could this there, be a... There's definitely hints that this organization regularly does research work for potentially the military and other organizations. I think they... Do they say something along the lines of, we kind of work out all the theory, get it to a point where it could be made, and then someone else takes over? Yeah, I think so. so we have various uh, inventions, and then someone else figures out the practical applications for them, and yeah. often they are weapons or something like that. So I guess, uh, yeah, they probably... Okay, so they would make something, because they obviously made this robot. Oh, that's true, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I, I get... I got the impression from that, at the very least, that they could pop up anywhere, so... So maybe, do you think maybe there's, because I don't know the the story behind this, but do you think maybe there's a K2, K3, yada, 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 K9? I don't know. Maybe, maybe they built it. I, well, if I was naming these things, I feel like you, you name K9 for a reason. <laughs> you may not have got the two to eight. <laughs> no. <laughs> you might have skipped a bit. <laughs> Um, so, so I wonder if maybe at this point they already know that there's going to be a robot dog called K9. Well, at the very least, that they figure that's going to be a fun concept. It's not so much the K9 that gets my attention. It's the fact that this is K1. Yeah. Why is it K1? We never even get a meaning for K. It's just K1. No, that's, that's very true. Because there's nothing about the institution that if, has K in the name or anything. No, exactly. And if that's the case, then this is some serious Moffat-style strings and jam sowing the seeds of future yeah. plot lines. We'll obviously get to it, but do you happen to recall where K9 pops up? No. No. It's Tom Baker, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where so, uh, I, I actually from when. hadn't actually realised it was Tom Baker. I'd, I'd connected it with Sarah Jane. Oh, right. But given where we are... I can now see that it's Sarah gonna... Jane gets it from Tom Baker, I yeah. guess. He... 
but yeah, I can see that because Serodane isn't going to outlast Baker, so I can no. see that this is where it's going to pop up. That's true. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. I guess so. It's that like, kind of nicely segues us into Companion Land, by the way. Yeah. Sorry, I, I am, I'm constantly interrupting you, and I apologize for that. No, not at all. Let, let's um, talk about Companions. All right. What, what do you want to say? Well, embarrassingly, I'd forgotten about Harry Sullivan. See, I, I'm kind of intrigued. Because I don't really know Classic Who, mm. and I'm not that bothered about looking stuff up to... Like, I don't want to spoil things anyway. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. Um, I'm, I'm not doing that either, really. I did, unfortunately. I was looking online to see, you know, we're, we're watching classics as we can get our hands on them. And I was, I was looking at all the different avenues you could possibly watch Classic Doctor Who these days. Yeah. And a picture just flashed up of the cover of, I think, this, this season's box set. Oh, right, okay. And, and, he, was, got and he was on it. Mm. I think I had, I had watched maybe up to episode three of this serial. You know, I, I generally had no idea this character was turning into a companion. I wasn't even 100% certain on his <laughs> name or, you know, his connection to stuff. Like, uh, he was the Doctor. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure he was Sullivan. It's quite late in the serial we hear his first name mentioned. I was not getting that this character was going to end up being a companion. Yeah. And then right at the end... Bingo bango. <laughs> there he, there is. he goes. Yeah, into the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. So Harry Sullivan has a... I, I read his backstory now. I, I wasn't aware of it before, as in the backstory of casting this companion. Okay. And first off, I'd completely forgotten about this guy. So the second he shows up on screen, it's just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Harry. <laughs> He's going to be a companion. He's going to fly through space. I know this person is not going to stay in this lab but cool awesome so i looked it up and i know how many episodes he's going to be in or how many serials he's going to be in okay and i checked that against how many serials benton is going to reappear in so benton we've had benton for tons of time now yeah and i strangely very vividly remember benton from my childhood but benton spoiler he only has three more serials after this one Oh. That's Benton. Harry has a few more than that. But I wonder if in my mind I've somehow conflated these two characters, that I really loved Benton because I saw one or two serials of, of his as a kid, and then I just plastered that impression, that psychological impression on the other companion. But um, yeah, anyway. So Harry Sullivan, background to him, he's young, he's clever, and He's even compared to James Bond in this one. He gets to do some undercover stuff. Yeah. And apparently the, the thought at the time was, when writing this character, the thought at the time was, we're going to have another older gentleman doctor, sort of a return to the first doctor. And if that's the case, then we need someone else to do the action stuff and, you know, get captured and, and infiltrate, stuff that Pertwee would normally do. Yeah. So they cast this young, handsome, adventurous chap. And then because they went with Tom Baker instead, and Tom Baker was 40 at the time. He's 40 in this serial. Wow. Yeah. That, that's actually... Sorry, a little, little sidebar here. Yeah. That's impressive, because especially... I, I it's feel the like, 70s. People age differently. Though. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know if this, if this ever is just a thing that happens, or if it's just as you get older, you kind of realise <laughs> how old people really look. But generally, up until maybe the 90s, I felt like people aged pretty badly. Ra- yeah, exactly. They aged rapidly. Um, but Tom Baker looks great. Yeah. For 1970s, would, 40. Would not have pegged him <laughs> as 40. Do continue. Yeah, well done. Uh, but yeah, so because they went with Tom Baker, and Tom Baker was nowhere near as senior as they had first anticipated, they didn't give Harry the run that he deserved. So they, they wrote him out of the show much, much sooner than anticipated, which is a bit of a shame because uh, the two of them, they have chemistry. They were skipping a rope together. They were great. <laughs> exactly. 
the, the whole like it's it's quite farcical <laughs> but the whole wake up thing and and the doctor as in dr sullivan yeah kind of being a caretaker kind of that's that's sort of like the reason you see him along for the ride is he's he's there to almost kind of check the doc's okay for a moment. Like, uh, why else would a medical doctor be getting in a jeep? Yeah, exactly. Going out on field stuff. Like, yeah, they have they have a great great time of it, and I'm got a little bit sad that just because they thought stuff would happen that didn't happen from the get go, like that they they, yeah, ca- they, they cast someone else beyond their expectation by the sounds of it. Like, yeah, it seems like it, yeah. And it's just... Yeah. So they must have conceived of BBC. Harry Sullivan while still casting the fourth Doctor. Yeah. And at this point, they're probably seeing lots of lots of actors and most of them are more Hartnell than Baker. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm super happy to be becoming reacquainted with Harry Sullivan. I think it's, it's definitely weird watching this episode... Because I, I went back and watched the first episode okay. before sitting down to do this because I felt like that was a good thing to have a bit more solidly in my brain because it's okay. it's Baker's transition and that, that whole first 15 minutes is just pure gold. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so it was worth rewatching anyway. But yeah, seeing Sullivan appear in that episode, knowing now that he's going to be a companion, it makes a lot more sense. Like... <laughs> why he has those interactions with the doctor straight from the start and yeah they're establishing chemistry between those yeah two. and i think the first time i watched it it was a bit odd like i i kind of couldn't remember his name and it's like why are you getting this why for a start why are you in unit and don't understand that the doctor is an alien yeah exactly um like he's just he's just thrown in at a level that he doesn't seem capable of, and we've never of met with. this guy before and he's yeah. a doctor and he's wearing civilian clothes he's not in uniform He's a military doctor. He has yeah, a I think, rank. I think he's, according to wiki stuff, I think he's a naval officer. There's something seriously James Bond about him. I mean, there's there's the element of, you know, James Bond is Commander Bond. Yeah. But you never really see him in uniform. But he ha- he holds this rank. This guy gets compared to James Bond. He wears a very snazzy suit. He's very well-spoken. He's clearly, you know, he's Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah. The chap was Oxford educated, by the way, (laughs) as in the actor. And he works for a military intelligence, what's it, organization. He's the kind of chap who would never say, what's it? (laughs) So, yeah. Unless he was saying... What is that crisp? It's it's a what's it? It's a <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't believe that's anything I would care to eat. Can we use the first 15 minutes of part one to just talk about Tom Baker's introduction? <laughs> uh, because I'm, I'm thinking specifically of how he's fashioning his new outfit. Okay. Go back in to the TARDIS, come out. He's dressed as a Viking. <laughs> And it's the most normal thing for him. I love that. It's like, yeah, off we go. <laughs> like, Is that what you're wearing now? <laughs> it's so good. So I've noted down. So I, I wrote Barbarian, actually. I felt more. Oh, uh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> although, again, because I, I watched it twice uh, on the second viewing, I was like, no, it's too civilized for a Barbarian. <laughs> but it doesn't quite look normal medieval. It's uh, got horns on. I mean, uh, Uxbridge Viking. Uxbridge Viking. Yeah. <laughs> Then the next one was some kind of... I, I went with Royal Guard. Oh, okay, I went with Playing Card King. Yeah, that's, I got a Playing Card King. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one is the... He's sort of the Arlecchino, the sort of Commedia dell'arte, old school clown. Yeah, I wrote down Jester, and then, but what I, what I was thinking was 
French clown. Uh, okay, uh, I'm thinking uh, Italian. You're thinking Italian, but okay. but yeah, regardless. Yeah, <laughs> continental Renaissance clown. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the Viking. That's the killer for me. Because <laughs> it's there's no pretension behind it. It's yeah. just his. I wouldn't be surprised if he just decides to fuck it. Today I'm a Viking. You know, <laughs> this is warm. It's cold out. <laughs> so. Uh, is it a little bit sad in a way that he, he uh, now just has a uniform? It's just a long scarf and a hat. <laughs> I feel like he has two different ones that he alternates over his run. Oh, okay. I think the scarf is probably... Uh, no, I think he also has two scarves. There's one, which is the... As in one set of colors that he wears now. Hat, coat, yeah. scarf. And then there's later one which is all red. Oh, okay. Like different tones of burgundy, I think. But I'm not sure. And maybe misremembering. <laughs> it would have been pretty fun, though, if he'd just rocked up every episode with a different outfit. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not what we get. Just before this scene, though, uh-huh. I super loved. So I forget the exact setup, but he's basically about to bugger off in the TARDIS. Like, yeah, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I've got my shit together again. I know who I am. I'm a doctor. This is my face. These are my ears. Great. Yeah. Guess I should go for a little jaunt then. Mm hmm. And then Sarah Jane's knocking on the door of the TARDIS and he kind of opens it, has a little confab with her and bagels. And after talking to them for the entire scene, I think he's about to bugger off again and then opens the door and he goes, and who are you again to, <laughs> yeah. to, to the break? Goes, We've met, haven't we? <laughs> so, Alexander the Great. No, Hannibal. <laughs> and then his face just lights up. It's like, when he says Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart yeah. he recognises I know it's it, that, isn't that heartwarming that face and the, the recognition is just I will take that to my grave yeah. <laughs> his joyful expression and kind of wonderment face yeah. big eyes big grin how can you not love that guy <laughs> I know possibly more so than previously or hereafter in New Who I don't want to make any uh, statements about the rest of Classic Who but I feel like the transitional relationship between the Doctor and people who knew the previous incarnation of the Doctor, mm. I feel like that's dealt with incredibly well here, better than in other instances. As in, it, it feels more natural. There's there's an initial shock as, oh, what do you look like? But then that is almost instantly dispelled. Immediately, we feel like the Brigadier and Sarah Jane, they know this Doctor. Yeah. And it really helps us, the audience, to get to, to grips with the fact that someone completely new is playing that familiar character. Yeah, yeah I get you, get you totally. And dialing it back even further. All right, here we go. It's going <laughs> to so, take us forever to get to part two of this. <laughs> well, we talked about the skipping. Uh-huh. But just before that, he's trying to show off that he's fighting fit. And he karate chops a brick. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> And then just does some very elaborate jogging on the spot. <laughs> I think if that was Pertwee, yeah. it would have had a, such a different feel because he was it this, would have. this action guy. And it wouldn't have been comedic when he was jogging on the spot. It no, it would, would have been macho. And obviously there is a physical aspect to that. Like yeah. Baker is, he's a bit of a wobbly looking guy. Yeah. Like him jogging on the spot is not going to look kind of macho and commanding probably. He, he could maybe dial it up quite a bit and... Sure get close to it but he does it obviously as comedy and, yeah. but it's not slapstick it's not stupid it's just like whimsy yeah <laughs> i'm throwing that around a lot it's very relevant yeah 
And it's, I hadn't thought about the brick before, but I mean, he does at a later stage in the in the serial karate jump a brick again, and he fails, he fails to yeah. break it. And I wonder if that shows the transition from third doctor to fourth doctor. Oh, I think so in the beginning right. he still he has some of that macho energy, and he manages to just chop a brick in half. Oh my god, you're so right. But towards the end, I mean, it must be deliberate, right? Yeah. Why would he otherwise fail the second? No, you're time right. Out? That that whole scene, which which I love, is actually him getting rid of. Pertwee. Yes, You're exactly. Right. It's You're the totally physical right. exorcism of the third Doctor. Yeah, all of this energy, all this <laughs> kind of physical anger in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just like, no, it's out, gone. Out. Now, now I'm putting my feet up. <laughs> exactly, putting my feet up and I'm putting things in buckets. <laughs> all right, can we talk about um, SRS a little bit? Yeah, the, the elitist organisation that thinks no one should think for themselves. <laughs> That, that lot? Yes, the Scientific... Hang on, I've written... Oh, Scientific Reform Society is what they're called. Yeah. Who are super Nazis. Oh my god, yes. I mean, <laughs> their logo looks very much like a swastika. They're using... I feel like at some point when their marketing department is going, hmm, so guys, we're going to have some flyers printed out. And we're, we're on fonts.com. Which one should we pick? Oh, I don't know. There's that third Reich.ttf. Maybe we could download <laughs> that one and use that font. Everything is... Even when she's... When Hilda is talking to the, the, yeah, like, the society, whatever, like her... To the SRS, she's even gesticulating very exaggeratedly. Very, very much like Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't pull any punches with... Absolutely not. Which I, th- I think is one of the few failings. Well, there are probably a lot of failings, but it's one of the few big failings of this serial is just how pathetically transparent oh, some see. of that stuff is. Sure. Well, it seems at first that maybe it's not going to be. I mean, okay, maybe this is exposing our failings, by the way. Okay. But there's we were talking about companions, and we failed to talk about one of the companions in depth completely sarah jane swing back to that oh, we, fuck we, it. Well, yeah, we got we'll, we got distracted we'll get back to sarah jane but on the topic of i mean sarah jane gets a lot more agency in this serial and on that same note the leader of the srs hilda there's that zing moment where sarah jane is introduced to the director of the srs and the director's assistant and sarah jane makes the assumption that the man is the director yeah and she's zinged by hilda to like hey Come on, I didn't you, expect you, that from you, girlfriend. You, sh- you should know better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are elements to this in the beginning that I feel are kind of leading us down a different path. The assumption being, actually, no, this is a strong, intelligent, heroic woman. And then it turns out, strong, intelligent, fucking maniacal, crazy bananas person. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the problem, is that they tried to pitch the big bad as being two different things. And neither of them were particularly well fleshed out and thought through. So at the start, they could be... As which things? Well, at the start, there's kind of scientists that are maybe using this robot to just steal some stuff. Yeah. Probably not wanting to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mind, when I when I see a setup like this, I'm not immediately thinking, oh, so these guys are going to be stealing all the codes to the nuclear weapons around the world. Why so- are they all in one shed, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, with old Uncle Eric. <laughs> Hi, uh, Kim Jong-un and <laughs> every European leader <laughs> and the US. <laughs> every, we've all just piled our nuclear launch codes into one shed in England. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, we just have to quickly... <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We have to quickly brush on that scene where, 
where the brig is, is explaining to the doctor that yeah the usa russia and china have given their nuclear codes to a neutral party which of course had to be britain <laughs> and the doc says well naturally the rest are foreigners <laughs> and the big the brigadier just gives him the biggest stare and side stare and it's just like I t- i'm not actually quite sure what point they were trying to make there. i'm pretty sure they were trying to say yeah we're very aware that we write this british show about being very british centric and no we're not the center of the world i think that's probably what it is i'm pretty sure and i think there are a couple of other tongue-in-cheek moments like that in this serial and it but it was just like what the fuck <laughs> That is an ingenious piece of writing. (laughs) It just dawned on me that JD at one point mentioned this back in the day when we were doing either New Who or audiobook reviews, that it is units that has, that is in charge of everyone's launch codes. Uh-huh. It's not Great Britain. They might be stored in Great Britain, yeah. but, but it's uni- under units. Which would control. make sense, that whole United Nations bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even though it, it turns out, I think I'm wrong about that. It's, I don't think it is United Nations. I think it's Unified Intelligence Task Force. I think at first it was oh. called United Nations and then the BBC retconned it to Unified. Oh, I see. Yeah, so that's my bad. Maybe this is the point it gets retconned then. Okay. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but us little Brits... <laughs> everyone else have everyone else's code that's just good. in case they're naughty people need a slap on the wrist it's like we're gonna show all your dirty laundry <laughs> <laughs> no we're gonna give away all the nuclear codes <laughs> what <laughs> yeah it's it's a bit of a weird setup. so what's the point of having all these nuclear launch codes in one centralized place like either you just don't have nuclear weapons anymore if they're all stored in one place and one third party is in charge of them, then there is no Cold War. There's no nuclear threat. Yeah, I It d- makes no sense, basically. Well, especially when in this episode they demonstrate that everyone has a failsafe. So anyone who, yeah, exactly. anyone who gets hold of the codes... I don't know. I'm not quite sure what kind of deterrent it's meant to be. Like, I, I don't agree with stockpiling nuclear weapons as a deterrent against nuclear weapons anyway. But I can see some kind of logic there if, if that's the way... You, you are minded that sure it's that threat of well you don't want to get destroyed you're going to throw something at me i'll throw it straight back and we'll both die yeah whereas this seems to be well if you do something naughty i'm gonna publish your code so that someone else could fire off your rockets that seems incredibly risky yeah i <laughs> <laughs> don't do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right, so nuclear weapons are now going to be used by the SRS to destroy the Earth. Only if no one gives them one million (laughs) dollars. One million dollars. And to begin with, they're just going to destroy something. Do they specify what they're going to destroy? I don't think they do. I think they're just going to say they're going to launch one. We're we're launching a a rocket. Yeah, possibly. Okay. But... But at some point, do they not also speculate that, hey, in order to make this a better world, we need to destroy most of it, and then we're sort of going to repopulate it. It, Certainly the robot wants to repopulate it with Sarah Jane, which is super weird. (laughs) The point I'm I'm getting at is that we've had plots in the past in Classic Who, I can't remember now what they're called, but we certainly have had plots in the past where some organization wants to destroy everything. In the dinosaur episode, right? Yeah. This, this is not a unique setup. No, absolutely not. And I not. definitely got that. They want to reboot the Earth, but as they're working towards that ultimate goal, you know, they're organized. They've got a plan. They know exactly what to do. This just seems like 
slapdash 20 bananas dudes and dudettes are stuck in a bunker. Ah, oh, fuck it. Just press the button. Destroy everything. And we'll, <laughs> we'll work it out afterwards. I, no, I feel like their plan was we feel like we're the smartest people on Earth. Okay. Everyone should do what we tell them to do. If you don't do that, we're going to kill everyone. Right. But of course, it's not a strong point to stand from and no one's going for it very quickly and so they say okay fine we'll just kill people <laughs> right okay gotcha which is where guy we haven't even talked about yet kettlewell oh kettlewell yeah who i really want to call kettleworth all the time <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> as nick would say professor bumbletron <laughs> whom we have met on who back when before oh really yes hang on bit of trivia sorry to interject with this played by edward burnham he played Professor Watkins in the serial The Invasion, and now he's playing Professor J.P. Kettlewell. I hope not in the same way, because <laughs> it's a big enough stereotype now. I hope he doesn't do that stereotype twice. No, he was definitely less of a stereotype in, in Invasion, I think. Okay. But, um... I mean, he's, he's basically Einstein. Uh, yeah. I mean, with that hair. Yeah. That hair is, that hair is amazing. <laughs> All of his mannerisms, up until the point where he turns out to be just a completely different schizoid yeah. dudemeister, he's quite charming and lovable as a Mr. Magoo character. Yeah, he has a wonderful scene with the Doctor where the Doctor's kind of rapports with him and yes, exactly. gets him to actually help out. Where yeah. it, like, no one else is quite on his level and he's very dismissive. And yeah. the Doctor's yeah, like, oh, yeah, then do this. And, and then this thing clicks into place and he's like, oh my God, I'm finishing your sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> And they're like best buds. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, he's robotics engineer, part-time Einstein impersonator. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's got his own Einstein cover band. Yeah. <laughs> he's invented this robot. It turns out he's in on everything. He's in on all the plan to be elitist and Aryan. Well, so when he is going through his flat or office or whatever it is that we get to see... And he's suddenly ambushed by the robot. And he seems genuinely frightened. Yeah. Is that just for show? Or has the SRS actually gone after him with his own robot? I don't get that scene. That scene doesn't make sense in no. the context of everything else. I think that's another case of they're fabricating tension by deliberately writing something incongruous with the characters that we're seeing portrayed on screen. Yeah, I, d I don't think they quite understood how to write suspense. Like, this is what they were trying with the robot point of view. Yeah. They were withholding information. So you don't quite know what's happening. All you're seeing is this thing with pincers. You know the episode's called Robot. Yeah. But you don't know quite what's going on. You don't know quite what it is. And then it is it's quite a big reveal when you see the robot at the end of episode one with Sarah Jane. That's great. And yeah, I, I love the, the head that they did on the robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The body bit can take a leave of it. Yeah, um, what, what? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I think that's kind of what they try to do with Kettlewell as well. Like, they try and make him this double agent and keep him hidden. Yeah. But they forget that it has to make sense when you flip it around and understand who he is. So they have, yeah, they have that scene where it's just him and the robot. It's just him and the robot. Why would there be any duplicity in that? I think there are two serials in this one serial. <laughs> I genuinely think that there's... There's a good chance that the... Uh, who wrote this? It's Terry Dix. T -Dix yes. Yeah. Terry Dix? Terry Dix. Terrence. Terrence. Terrence Dix, yeah. Terry. Yeah, Terry to us. He's Terry, yeah. Tessa. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a good chance that T Dix had 
two entirely separate plot lines in mind and then just squished them together. One in which we go down the, the traditional exclusive club of genius madmen decides to reboot the Earth slash take over. Yeah. And then another one in which a scientist invents a robot with intelligence, emotions, free will, yada, 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 which runs amok. Like where where the robot suddenly either is taken advantage of or where intelligence spurns actions that the inventor, Kettlewell, had not foreseen. Yeah, like- And now you're squishing those two stories together and they both have an A and a B, but each A contradicts each other and each B contradicts each other. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, that's my theory. No, I, don't, I could see how that's Because split possible. them up and you yeah. have two really good cereals. Yeah. Two good, like, two parties. Oh, no, you mush them together and you still get a good cereal. Yeah, okay, no, no, yeah sorry. It's I, just, <laughs> we have a lot of question marks and, and holes. <laughs> that, that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, is just the nature of the way these things were written for the, the classics in a way. Like, one story over four parts. Yeah. Where it's not always, like, a complete episode, I, fi- I feel sometimes like week on week is like you haven't had enough <laughs> of all the the highs and lows and the the meat and the action but by the end of the series you've kind of you've got your your fill of everything because they i mean they, they throw in references to i mean it turns out being this living metal thing but then yeah. they reference some material that the i think it's the energy thing for the disintegrator is is containing maybe this is a checkoff thing that comes back in other episodes but it was like a it's, a, it's another kind of unobtainium yeah, exactly. type thing. They, they, they throw in another, another well, reference. Let's invent a substance that serves the, the purposes of this particular plot. Yeah. We've got a disintegrator gun. I, the um, line there is ridiculous. This is in part one. I, I've written down, I, I don't know if this is a perfect quote or if this is more of a paraphrase, but when Hilda and her assistant, can't remember his name now, they're guiding Sarah Jane around the, the compound and they go, yeah, so it, we, um, we invent lots of different things and sometimes they get practical applications. And Sarah Jane jumps in and goes, yeah, like the disintegrator gun, <laughs> you pioneered the research on that, didn't you? Okay, A, did you call it the disintegrator gun? Like, is that the trademark? <laughs> is that a recognizable term? I mean, that's like, oh, you pioneered the research on the giant baby-killing space laser diamond, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, nothing nefarious about that. <laughs> I love that the disintegrator gun comes in its own box in like styrofoam and it, they have to pull it out. It, it's beautifully done, I think. Yeah, I, I love that. Apart from the fact that it just, it came in two parts. One part, which was just a tiny bit of metal you add on to it. <laughs> the rest of it is just all <laughs> already assembled. Like I would have rather it was just, uh, anyway, minor, minor picky point. <laughs> you know what though? Um, every time they gave something to that robot. Yeah. It was so flimsy and pathetic. Were you afraid that the hands were going to fall off? (laughs) I was so super impressed that those claws could actually grab stuff. It's so good. Like, we we saw a close-up of it grabbing an envelope and pulling it out of a safe. I know. Like, I don't know how many takes it took, but... The end, the end result? It's very much okay. like the robot in Lost in Space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or Forbidden Planet. Yeah. <laughs> With slightly less planing arms. <laughs> True. <laughs> but only slightly. Those claws also very handily grip a Sarah Jane puppet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. 
I love this robot. When it grows and it has its own King Kong style subplot of no, I'm let's destroy everyone, but I'm I've fallen in love with you, tiny woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it starts like it just it steps on a unit soldier. Yeah. <laughs> just like plump. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and it kicks through a building. I was very pleased it kicked through a building because up to that point, I was like, okay, you literally are the size of that massive mansion house yeah. construct. Why aren't you just stomping on shit? You've just stomped on that little soldier. Why yeah. aren't you stomping on these Jeeps? And, and then it kicks through a, a little um, Terrapin-like building. And I was like, yeah, go robot. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it want to destroy all of humanity except for Sarah? So, I mean, this is where I think the heart of the story could have been. Okay. Um, Explain. In my mind. Okay. Is the whole, we've got this robot that obviously is intelligent. Yeah. It feels. It's, it feels. It has emotion. It's potentially self-aware. Like we, I think so. We could pretty much go so far as to say, for any de- definition you want to throw at it, it's alive. Yeah, definitely. It's still, though, a machine that they're trying to control. They're feeding it these commands. But it's, at its core, it has a Star Trek Prime Directive. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe they actually called it a Prime Directive. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> like, it's a very different Prime Directive, but, you know, I was half expecting them to go straight to Asimov. Um, yeah, the laws of robotics. So, yeah. So it's, it's in this situation where it's being controlled, but doesn't want to be. It's starting to think about its own motivations. I think that's, you know, that's the interesting thing. So it's, it has this prime directive, it shouldn't be hurting humans, but it's got this kind of override that my mission now is to hurt that human. Or Which is causing a, an ethical conflict that it is very much aware of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or it, I think it then sort of turns into the phrase they use often is it's that person or these groups of people are enemies of humanity. Yeah. So it wants to protect humanity. Yeah. That's sort of so, at the core of it. Which is... So why would it then want to destroy humanity? Well, I think this is where it, it kind of flips on everything and is like, you know what? Humanity is a bunch of dicks. <laughs> yeah, they've been taking me for a ride. Yeah. yeah. The only one who hasn't is Sarah, Sarah. Jane. And I think the doctor says as much. You know? Well, the, okay, so yes, he does. But the doctor also refers to this as suppressed Oedipus complex. Yeah. Because he has... Because the robot has at this point killed the professor yeah can't remember his name now kettleworth kettleworth no kettlewell kettlewell i don't know why do i want to call him kettlewell kettle one kettle one (laughs) the the robot has destroyed professor kettle one and is now in love in a way with sarah i mean that's the only way i can see it if this is described as an oedipus complex right so he's killed his father he now wants to sleep with his mother (laughs) right so i'm not quite sure so Sorry for interrupting you. No, but, go for it. But is the implication there then that Sarah Jane, by being compassionate to him, is has maternal. changed changed him in in the way that she's part created what he is now? Yeah, in a way, she has mothered his emotional development. Yeah, she's rebirthed him, and as thanks, he now wants to plow her. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure if I read that much into it. Sorry, I have a jelly baby in my mouth now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this episode is sponsored partly by jelly babies. By jelly babies, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about the plowing. <laughs> <laughs> I may have added that myself. But, I mean, 
why call this an Oedipus complex? He's destroyed his father, I get that. Yeah. He now has some form of romantic slash psychosexual fascination with his mother. The only human being he wants to keep alive is Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane, ergo, must be his maternal figure. Yeah. And I think in many ways is. She's nurturing, she is protective... Etc. Etc. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to <laughs> say what the robot doesn't doesn't want to do to Sarah Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Different robot notes. Do you like the sound that it makes when it thinks? Because to me, that just it sounded like Fred Flintstone running. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I actually clocked. Okay. This- <laughs> sound bite. <laughs> Is this? I I recall there was a point where it kind of turns around and you you're strangely well at least my eye was drawn to some red light on its back while there's some noise going on which I th- I thought was going to be a thing like you could overpower the robot with oh, a weak yeah. weak spot on the back but I definitely remember there was a noise then was that is that I think every time that it it stops to think about something we just have Fred Flintstone driving his car you know yeah so when the robot then disappears with Sarah I mean the robot takes Sarah away, and Unit does not notice. Uh, This is when they're in the bunker. Yeah. Yeah, Unit are shit. (laughs) They're terrible, and I feel like they're unfairly blaming Benton for this. It is not Benton's fault. Well, I feel like it maybe is a little bit. It's all of Unit's fault. They're incompetent. (laughs) Well... I feel, I don't know if this happens in the real military, but it's the it's the blaming down the chain of command, isn't it? It's Brig blames Benton. That's true. Benton is probably blaming some random soldier who he can't shout at at the moment. But um, Benton, however, has been. I mean, okay, yeah, it, he's still sub brigadier, but Benton was promoted in this episode. He was. Benton is no longer Sergeant Benton. He is Mister Benton. He is the warrant officer. Warrant officer. He's he's Mister Benton. Yeah. What I, I, I looked up warrant officer, apparently, I, I think it was warrant officer, it's warrant something. Apparently at that point, you are mister. Oh, I see. Yeah, sergeant is below that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I didn't quite understand, I, I probably should have looked it up myself, but I didn't quite understand what his promotion was at that point, because it was, it was portrayed as they can't afford to put in a real, like, level <laughs> underneath the brig, so I'm not going to get that, but I've got this instead. And it's a promotion. But there's also the thing, like, I, I mean, Yates, Mike Yates was around before, and he sat between the brig and Benton, and, and Sergeant Benton, that is. Oh, so he... Now, Yates is, camp. like, he's fucking bananas himself. That role between them, I wonder if maybe Yates used to be this, you know, and Benton is the new Yates now. Well, given the way he says it, I think, yeah, Yates is the void they don't want to fill because they can't afford it. Oh, right, okay. Benton's got something slightly different. Okay. But yeah, basically. So there are a couple of moments of sonic use. Oh, excellent. Excellent, Which excellent, excellent. May entirely be in episode three, like literally within two minutes of each other. They're all in episode there, three. I yeah, don't think right. there's any other point. I liked it. What about you? I liked that it's it doesn't permeate the whole four episode arc. Yeah, okay. And uh, however... In- increasingly, I am. I'm, I'm not anti Sonic screwdriver, but increasingly, I am becoming sensitive to the Sonic screwdriver being used as a magic wand. Yeah, and in, in this one, it was just really, really powerful. That's the only problem I have with it. I'm obviously more used to New Who, where it is a magic wand. Yeah, but I think it seemed 
reasonable in the scenarios this time around. So he sonics what seems to be a load of mines. Yeah. Which I can kind of buy. Which he has done before. Oh, okay. In the Sea Devils. How do you feel about him like augmenting the sonic to use it as a sonic lance? Well, this is what I was going to go on to. So, so I can I can kind of understand some scientific level where audio sonic vibration things could set off mines. Yeah. So that's great. And yeah, then he makes a point to say this isn't a standard function of the sonic screwdriver. Yeah. I've turned it into a sonic lance. I hate the term sonic lance. <laughs> and it it boils down to being a blowtorch so, type thing or a lightsaber. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, you're right. Which, yeah, I like that they are bringing particular attention to the fact that we are changing it, but he's done something to change it. Yeah, and this isn't going to happen all the time. Yeah. He's I, popping something on this. Exactly. I would, I would hope that he needs to do that every time he wants to perform that action. So weirdly, again, I might be misremembering this now, but I recall the fourth Doctor's Sonic to always have that little parabolic antenna at the top, ah. which is what he adds to make it to turn it into a sonic lance. Yeah, I, I, guess, I recall him always having that. Oh, well, I guess that's the thing. Maybe, maybe he's now turned it into a Sonic that can oh, also be a Sonic Lance. Yeah, maybe. So he can use it whenever he wants to. I hope he doesn't always use it. Well, I hope so too. But again, it's it's probably going to be in the same sort of situations. He uses that to get through a lock. Yeah. Like in New Who, the, the Sonic is always about locks. Primar- no, primarily. And then it gets used. When, it's, when it isn't a tricorder. Well, like when it's used... In the way you expect it to be. Or a USB port. (laughs) Right. right. Or a virus disseminator over Wi-Fi. Or a beacon for the universe. Yeah. I'm sure it has. Or a communicator of some sorts. Yeah, etc., etc. Shortly after that scene, I'm just saying this because it is right... The the very next note on my list, we get the greatest... The shortest, but also the greatest tank scene. (laughs) (laughs) Two dates. In, In your mind... Is it the greatest because of how toy-like it is? It, I mean, it is a toy. <laughs> it is better than the tank scene in the latest New Who in the New Year special. Oh, really? To me, this is better. <laughs> <laughs> I love that there is a toy. My note is literally, oh my god, the toy tank is the best. Oh no, not the disintegrator ray. No! <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my note, because I think I actually looked away from the screen to write it. I wrote, unit finally brought in a tank. And then I had to go back in and write, even if it is a toy one. <laughs> yeah, because it was, it was bothering me up to, uh, like, this is right at the end of episode three. Yeah. They've had run-ins with the robot on considerable occasions, and they just keep <laughs> shooting at it. Yeah, they know. At this point, they know that it doesn't work. To the point... Where in episode four, the Brigadier has the amazing line of, you know, just once I'd like to meet an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets. <laughs> <laughs> like, negating the fact this is an alien. Um, yeah, also like, good this, point. This is another of the ch- tongue-in-cheek. And I, I do wonder if, if this, again, go back to the whole, got to wipe the slate clean. Yeah. Um, we got to have our new imprint for this new Doctor. And maybe they want to get rid of some of that kind of thing. And this is... Right, right, point that out. This is the last time it's going to happen. Last time we're going to have someone that unit just pops a load of rounds out and gets swatted by. So going back to the companion thing. Yeah, let, let's let's end on maybe not the best, but certainly among the best things about this serial. 
So Sarah Jane, we're talking Sarah about? Sarah Jane, exactly. <laughs> yes. She, she's in it. <laughs> she actually, she achieves quite a lot. I was going to say, she, there is a notable difference between Sarah Jane in this episode and Sarah Jane in the last one. Yeah, there's, well, for a start, we've got Unit turning to her when the Doctor isn't around. Yeah. Um, so she feels more included. Yeah. And she also takes in exactly that same sense, in that regard, when when the Doctor is not around, she is kind of bullshy towards people like Benton and the Brigadier because she knows that she is an authority and that she is yeah. competent and, you know, to be trusted, entrusted with important things. Yeah. I don't... I kind of feel like the relationship between her and Unit, we haven't seen th- enough of that for it to be warranted the way that both of them are treating each other. Okay, yeah, that's true. But in the context of just this this serial alone, that's great. Yeah, she's she's there as a companion. Like, it's not the great phrase to use for what she's doing. No, that's it, true. It's it's the Whovian phrase we have. Like, she is the companion of the Doctor, and that's why she's trusted, and that's why she can do those kind of things. And she clearly, I mean, it, it seems very understandable, even just based on this one serial, and I'm sure it's going to be even better and more prominent going forward, but it seems pretty clear why this one character was entrusted with a spin-off of her own. Like, in this serial, when the Doctor is not around to, to tell her what to do, she herself independently takes the initiative to go and investigate, to find clues and make assumptions and accuse based on facts. You know, she, yeah. she makes a case. She's, she's not just a journalist. She is an investigative journalist and a, like a gung-ho, dependable member of UNIT. Yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but she's the first person that goes to the think tank yeah, organization. Definitely. She's the only person who puts it together. Really. Yeah. She's, she goes and talks to Kedowell. She's the first one of our crew that encounters the robot and lives. Correct. She is also the only person with enough emotional intelligence to sway the robot without bullets. Yeah. Not even the Doctor is capable of doing that. The Doctor destroys the robot. She talks the robot down. Yeah. Actually, leaving her with a bit more autonomy and time, she might have uh, brought, brought a resolution that didn't involve destroying this new life. Exactly. Yeah. Um... And I, I, yeah, the final final thing from her kind of like being the first to places is, is the whole SRS kind of underground organization thing. She, you know, she uncovers that and pieces it. Like like you say, she pieces it all together. She's she's woven that thread through the entire story. Like, yeah. I don't think it quite makes sense a lot of the time, but, you know, she is the one that's um, leading it and everyone else is kind of playing catch up. They're piecing together a few other bits in the background, but yeah, they're, they're kind of like piggybacking on on her work yeah true yeah i think because i've mentioned before it's it's struck me as odd as how often she spends a serial away from a doctor like there are entire episodes where she probably doesn't interact with him i'm getting captured yeah how often is she gonna get captured even i mean in this one she does admittedly get captured by the robot and there is a moment when she's up on the rooftop just going get me get me down from here or something to that effect but even in the context of being the robot's hostage, she is already doing more good than an entire army of men. Yeah. And in that regard, maybe this isn't about Sarah Jane specifically, but clearly there is a, there is a feminist st- stance taken in this serial as opposed to prior serials. Yeah. And I, I think it's, 
it's shown more intellectually in the way it's written as well that what what i was trying to allude to is previously where she goes off without the doctor yeah it's it is almost a subplot it's it doesn't quite thread things together it might oh, ha- I see. it yeah. might have an impact in a larger way kind of like when things come back around to it, to it in the end but this one really felt like it was the core throughout it even though she was coming and going with scenes with unit and with the doctor and yeah i don't know if she actually spends a lot of time with the doctor again like you know but she she feels more involved she's she's definitely part of the team she's doing the same work that everyone else is basically i liked how she introduced harry to the tardis as well yeah at the very end maybe part of this and part of what we've just said about her is kind of bbc retconning everyone's character dynamics in that very last scene when harry is he's clearly he's about to get the shock of his life stepping into the tardis yeah but she acts as though she's so used to the tardis she is so this is just commonplace for her she's so comfortable in the situation that it lends her a tremendous air of authority that she just goes oh Treat yourself. Yeah. Step in there and just <laughs> wait. I'm going to show you something amazing. Yeah. If you exclude Tom Baker from that scene, she acts the way that normally the doctor would act. And yeah. Harry Sullivan acts the way that any generic companion would act. No, you're right, actually. Yeah. That I can't remember if the doctor says a lot. He says pretty much the same thing that she does. But yeah. those two, they're sort of... They're, they're reflecting that more well-informed, worldly, wise point of view yeah Harry sullivan is the young naive biped who's about to have his mind blown i might be misremembering but i kind of get the feeling that the doctor is more hook up on the fact that harry's kind of going what you're going to go in that box that's just ludicrous he's almost kind of correcting that stupid mindset from his point of view whereas oh, sarah, a good point. sarah jane is more about you know what go I'm, and have a look I'm, you're, I'm gonna, you'll blow your bloody mind i'm gonna treat you to an adventure yeah yeah um I might have misremembered that, but I, I, I think you're right. I think, that no, I think, that's, I think so, that's very So right. I think you, you've, you've got the nail on the head that, that Sarah Jane is really doing what we would expect the Doctor's role to be in that. Yeah. Yeah. So all in all, I think she gets quite a good run in this serial. I think so too. Yeah. And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 la. Ratings. So I've actually written some notes for my ratings for once. Oh, wow. That's very this true is, of you. This is how, <laughs> this is how much is like... No, I have not written Drew level notes for my rating. Come on now. <laughs> Sorry. But I think this is how much this, uh, this serial kind of impressed on me. Okay. So Tom Baker is brilliant. Let's just get that out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the few, first few scenes where he's, he's coming together. He's trying to work out who the brig is. He's playing dress up. He's proving to the doctor that he's fit and healthy. You know, he's breaking bricks. You know, we've, we've unpacked that in a way that actually I didn't think of when I first wrote these notes, that he's he's saying goodbye to Pertwee. Yeah. Which gives it a whole other level. Wow, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and you know, he, he goes on and he's putting his feet up on stuff. He's just, he's doing wonderful kind of science that no one's expecting him to do where people are looking at electrified fences going, how did the robot root? Well, who, who ripped through this? How could they have done it? It's electrified. And the doctor's looking at a, a dandelion going, it got crushed. Based on the way I understand dandelions, it must have been a <laughs> half-ton thing that came through here. Like, it's great. It's bonkers. It's it's supposedly scientific, but it's bonkers. Um, that, it's very Sherlock, by the way. I'm sorry to, uh, to jump in there, but yeah. it's, it's a little bit... You can imagine Sherlock saying, like, oh, I, have you read my monograph on dandelions? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, and I, I love that kind of thing. So yeah, straight off the bat, I'm I'm loving Tom Baker's Doctor. Okay. The robot, I by the end of it, I I totally fell in love with. It's it's wibbly wobbly, a bit cardboardy. I was amazed it walked down steps. <laughs> <laughs> Every time it grabbed something, I was just again amazed that it actually grabbed it and picked it up but it has this wonderful kind of fighting with emotions and stuff i i kind of wish there was there was more i kind of wish that was the heart of the episode like you said there, there could have been two serials written here originally and i would have preferred the one that was about this robot that went a bit amok and had emotions and couldn't understand yeah, how the to amazing growing that. robot yeah 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 I, w- I would have preferred just that rather than this this yeah elitist group that wanted to blackmail the world <laughs> that bit just didn't kind of work um yeah i mean as part of that we've got kettleworth being this kettle one kettle well <laughs> even, yeah i'm going with the vodka kettle one kettle one kettle one uh k1 <laughs> that's why it's that's k1. k1 oh we're idiots oh man oh. <laughs> wow um yeah, I mean, he is, he's such a caricature of a mad scientist, Einstein type thing. And it's its a bit all over the shop, whether he's really this double agent, whether he really wants to blackmail the world. And uh, you know, it's just, it's not very well done in general. The Brigham Benton are fun, but unit are pretty pathetic, actually, just continually shooting at this robot that's immune to bullets. And, <laughs> and even when people are trying to escape, like, I think Sarah Jane's in, in custody and the robot's walking around and they just start shooting at the robot and all these humans are around. Is like, well, A, you could shoot at the bad humans and B, aren't you worried about hitting Sarah Jane? And it's just like, yeah, they're just bonkers people who, uh, yeah, should know better. But as we said, Sarah Jane gets a wonderful run through this, actually, up until she gets King Konged and then it kind of falls flat. Okay. There are ups and downs on this roller coaster ride of the introduction of tom baker but overall i think i freaking loved it and i'm giving it a 4.3 <gasps> oh you went ever so slightly above my rating <laughs> wow <laughs> oh fantastic excellent uh, justification for your 4.3 <laughs> i'd be remiss if i if i didn't also say that tom baker is it not only is tom baker incredible and and his his first appearance as the fourth doctor in this serial is just so endearing and fascinating and well played and well balanced it is also a huge influence on my rating overall <laughs> so huge in, an influence in fact that i'm i'm willing to disregard massive plot holes and uh, as we've already discussed and as you've already mentioned i'm not going to go into detail the mashing together of seemingly disparate storylines there are certain films and tv shows and episodes and serials of doctor who where the production values are so low and the props are so poor that there is zero charm it just sucks charm out of it and it just takes you out of the 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 feel of the story but in this case it has walked that type rope very well and i feel like it just emphasizes it when the robot bends over and you see his red pants <laughs> <laughs> that just made me smile and like the guy who's forced to wear this gigantic suit even more I love the robot, and I liked the two respective roles of the robot. I just didn't like them together. Here are a few bits of trivia, just to add to this. Okay. Arnold Jellicoe, the assistant to the director, Hilda's assistant. I'm sorry, say that name again. Arnold Jellicoe. Wow. Yeah. He was very nearly played by Colin Baker. Wow. Yeah, Colin Baker apparently 
read for the role and didn't get it. Hilda herself, Hilda Winters. <laughs> I didn't realize until I found the trivia. Her surname is Winters. Yeah, I, I wrote down Winters more than Hilda, actually. Oh, really? Not a, a season normally associated with good people. <laughs> Wow, true. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jennifer Coldheart. <laughs> <laughs> she will reprise this role, Patricia Maynard, that is. She will reply, reprise the role of Hilda Winters in an audiobook, Mirror Signal Maneuver. Uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, check that out. <laughs> and then go pass your driving test. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you're a genius. <laughs> we already said in the um, the Pertwee retrospective, much of this serial was shot at the same time as bits of Planet of the Spiders, mm. which is fascinating to me. I'm assuming that this is largely the the lab at Unit HQ because that's what they have in common, right? So the, yeah. the TARDIS is in the same place. The lab looks the same. I don't know if they have anything else in common, but th- that's a chunk of the story. And they must have just had like, okay, so Pertwee's in here now. Pertwee, go and grab a coffee. Baker, you're in, you're up next. <laughs> you know, that's really cool stuff. Overall, as introductory serials for new doctors go, this one had me not on the edge of my seat because of the tension. But it had me on the edge of my seat because I just didn't want it to end. And for a while now, we've been saying we're coming up to the Tom Baker run where the average duration of a serial is a four-episode arc. And this was one such four-episode arc. But I happily would have sat through another two episodes of completely contradictory plot lines (laughs) just for the pleasure of seeing all these characters on screen. So overall, uh, though I miss Pertwee very, very much, and I think he was fantastic, I'm so happy that we have Tom Baker and he's done a fantastic job. So I have written down 4.2. Nice. Now let's hear from Podcast Land. Max 250, or it would get out of hand. Rajaruni and Cheesecakes, we have a number of listener minis for this one, starting with Paul Forber. Hello, Paul. Hey there, Paul. Paul has sent in a rather long mini review, so where we've selected circa 250 words from it. Here we go. Paul Forber says, Outgoing script editor Terence Dix claimed tradition compelled him to write his successor, Robert Holmes's first story, in which the Doctor helped Unit investigate a robot's mysterious robberies. Beforehand, the Doctor transformed under the brigadier's nose to avoid his being unrecognizable. Then he jumped rope with medic Harry Sullivan and dressed as a Viking, a playing card king, and a clown before emerging from the TARDIS in his familiar clothes. Dix believed such erratic behavior could subsequently be dialed down, but it never was. And we're just going to take a little snip of the review there and jump to the end. Paul continues, The idea the Russians, Americans, and Chinese turning over their nuclear codes of Britain were ridiculous. Served the story before the robot grew and caught Sarah Jane paying homage to King Kong. Ha-ha. Unit's efforts were as ineffective as ever, but the Doctor was able to defeat it with a conveniently created virus at Benton's suggestion. <laughs> oh, Benton. Oh, Benton. The Brigadier understandably lamented, Just once I'd like to meet an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets. Nicholas Courtney? What are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Paul concludes, Robot was producer Barry Letts' last story and reflected this his era while serving as a bridge to what some regard as the show's golden age. It will begin as producer Philip Huthcliffe and Holmes took the Doctor, Sarah Jane and Harry into space for an adventure that would encompass the remainder of the season. 
Thank you so much, Paul. Ladies and gents, one not Paul, go to whobackone.com, read his review in its full splendor, and while you're at it, pop onto Twitter and say hi to Paul. He is at WordsmithPaul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Next up, we have Tracy from, from America. America. It's a quarter to 1 a.m., so we're dialing down the volume a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy starts. Hey, guys. I was just hanging around New Who and thought I'd take a stroll over to the classics for a minute. Oh, welcome. Tom Baker, you say? <laughs> Before he was Puddle Glum and Blackadder's mad Captain Redbeard Rum. Oh, yes. This guy was Doc 4, I guess. I'm excited to see it for the first time. <laughs> Will it be worth the hype? Here are my impressions. Wow, those teeth. <laughs> Total puddle glum lips. Way to use the scarf like a pro. Tiny tank, tiny tank, we have a tiny tank. In brackets, tiny tank song and rating courtesy of Tracy from America's daughter. And the rating is, they ran out of money for a real tank, huh? <laughs> real tanks are expensive, Tracy. <laughs> and Tracy from America's daughter. <laughs> That's an excellent mini and a very apt rating. <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much, both of you. Thank you, Tracy. Ladies and gents, please follow Tracy on Twitter. She is at Yekartniatnuf. That's Fountain Tracy backwards almost. almost. <laughs> I can do that bit. I can't do the other bit. <laughs> Next up, we've got Trenton Blaze. Hello, Trenton. Hey there, Trenton. Trenton starts off, of all the stories to come out of season 12 of Classic Who, Robot seems to be very average. <gasps> I mean, we're battling a giant robot and almost Nazis. Not the first time this has happened and certainly not the last time. That's that's a fair point. <laughs> well, Tom Baker is wonderful as the Doctor. He's, for the Classic series, what David Tennant's 10th Doctor is for the new series. Oh, good point. He's the icon. I dispute that a little bit. Anyway. Oh. The definitive article, you might say. From the moment he appears, he is the Doctor. He will be the Doctor for a generation and will basically become the face of the show from this point onwards. I think I'm just going to bullet point here, says Trenton. Bullet point number one, unit is great again. I actually like them in this story. Last proper unit story for a while. The villains, Kettlewell and Miss Winters, are severely <laughs> underdeveloped. Sarah and the Doctor's relationship has improved. She didn't really mesh with Pertwee. I think that's probably a fair point. I actually. think so too, yeah. yeah. Harry Sullivan, I like him, but he's a bit unnecessary. All right, okay. The robot was done well, agreed. Yeah, but the tank in part four looks crappy, says Trenton, and we agree. <laughs> <laughs> Not invasion of the dinosaurs bad, but maybe power of crawl bad. Ooh. Oh, we'll get to that. Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> Trenton concludes, overall, it's easy to dismiss the story, but despite its faults, Robot remains easy, unchallenging fun. And the fact is that it gave the world Tom Baker. His exuberant, ceaselessly creative interpretation of the Doctor lifted the show to stratospheric popularity. That reason alone makes Robot, perversely, an absolute gem. I just think it's a little overshadowed by what is to come. 3.5 out of 5. And there's a little follow-up with... Let the golden age of Doctor Who begin! Oh, please, yes, let it. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent mini Trenton. Ladies and gents who are not Trenton, go and follow Trenton. He is at Trenton Bless. That's blessed with two. What's Jim? Trenton's? No, S's, sorry. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> Thanks for that review, Trenton. Next up, we have... Paul Waring. That's exactly how you pronounce it. <laughs> yes. Just wearing. Thank you very much for clarifying that, Paul. <laughs> Paul starts. 
Robot is my favorite first story of New Doctor that still exists on film, mm. or I prefer Power of the Daleks as a novel. Ooh, interesting. Mm. Tom Baker takes to the role like a duck to water. I've never seen an actor take over a major character this quickly and smoothly. All the little eccentricities which define him as the Doctor for many fans are there from day one. Script-wise, it also helps that this is the first regeneration where at least one companion knows what has happened. There is none of the disbelief and skepticism of Power of the Daleks or Spearhead from Space. Also a very fair observation. One-on-one, the titular robot is a menacing enemy, and I love the look on the brigadier's face when he thinks that for once he can deal with something without the Doctor, only to be immediately proved wrong. (laughs) The robot's range of emotions seems a little odd. If the partially robotic Cybermen have no emotions, then why would a robot with no organic components get confused and upset? But I do like the way it forms an emotional attachment to Sarah. Finally, we get the introduction of Harry Sullivan, who is the butt of many jokes, but it but takes it with a wry smile on his face. This is my joint favourite TARDIS team, alongside Ooh. the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe. Really? Okay. Overall, says Paul, this is a great start to a new Doctor, but the best is yet to come, and he gives this four out of five. Nice. Excellent stuff. That's setting a really high bar, I gotta say. I mean, comparing this to Jamie and Zoe with Troughton, cool stuff. Okay, I'll I'll take both yours and Paul's words for it. They were great. They were fantastic. Ladies and gents, it turns out you can follow Paul on Twitter. He is at P Waring. That's not how you think it's spelled. (laughs) 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 If you're confused about that, go to whobackwent.com. Check out the spelling there. Thank you so much, Paul. Next up, we have Peter Zunich. Hey, Peter. Hello, Peter. Peter starts... Welcome, Tom Baker, the Doctor Who appeared on The Simpsons and the image most conjure when Doctor Who is mentioned. I've never realized it before, but Tom's debut portrayal is actually somewhat unsteady, even for the erratic character he normally portrays. Nevertheless, it's a great introduction, still successfully divided between deadly seriousness and trademark childishness. It's because you le- you nailed it, Leon. It's because he's shedding Pertwee. That's why it's a little bit... Nailed it! Yeah. Nailed it! <laughs> anyway, Peter continues. Kettlewell is a delight. Mm, slightly disagree there. <laughs> Sarah and the Brigadier are in top form. The robot is in image and voice brilliantly realised. I love when characters test its logic or accidentally call it into action. At one point in my childhood, I actually did wonder if they built a real robot that was really conflicted. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> love that. The plot is fun, if nothing else, and for the most part, progresses well. Yet as much as it nukes its competition, it also crushes some dandelions. It needed a touch more directorial attention. There's way too much secret POV in the first episode, especially since we know it's a robot from the story's title. Yeah, yeah that's a good, very good point. <laughs> also, many sets were sparse. Did the budget not account for set decorators? As for the living metal idea, it made for a fun ending, but it just didn't fit the rest of the story. The robot was tragically intimidating enough. It didn't need to become King Kong holding a doll as well. No, it did not. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, Peter says, we compute Baker's first foray into Whoville as getting a, our menacing beast just tripped over his own feet, but will forgo take two because it was directed by Ed Wood. (laughs) 3.6, presumably out of five. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much. This brings me to one checkbox in my notes that was not checked. I just wrote, remember what I said about darkened rooms instead of elaborate sets? The last time that we had a a classic review, it was Planet of the Spiders. Yeah. And we were talking about how incredibly 
poorly fashioned that weird spider senate was. Oh, yes. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, but a lot of Classic Who was just like, it was a dark room with nothing there except a few cardboard boxes. And then we get to this serial, and that is literally what they had. <laughs> the lab is just a blacked out room. Yeah. I love it. It's fantastic. Peter, excellent stuff. Thank you so much. Okay, next up, last but not least, in fact, we have Michael Ridgway. Ridgway. Hello, Michael. Michael has combined all of his things he likes and beliefs together. So let's just get into it. <laughs> all right. Kettle Wells hair. Mm. So uh, do we have to interpret whether he liked it or hated it? Yes. <laughs> let's do thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> Kettle Wells hair. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Big wobbly robot made of plastic and tinfoil. Thumbs, thumbs up. up. <laughs> Sarah Jane calling bagels a swinger. Thumbs, thumbs up. <laughs> Units return as a military force, but in dire need of ref- refresher training, like Benton taking time out to flirt with Sarah whilst his soldiers were being loudly slaughtered in episode three. <laughs> that bloke who, quote, lost the giant robot he was guarding in episode four, and Unit's new motto, leave every man behind, <laughs> in their laughable evacuation of the same episode. Thumbs up. Thumbs down? Oh, okay. no, thumbs down, I think. <laughs> Secret facilities hiring guards, but don't notice a giant robot two meters away. Thumbs down. Thumbs down, yeah. <laughs> Sarah Jane, why are you telling me top secret information to a journalist without security clearance? Bagels, there is no one else to tell. Seriously, Brigadier. Seriously. Thumbs down. I think thumbs down. Yeah. yeah. Although I think the context is that she's replacing the doctor. Yeah. She's, but this is why I was saying like she's not had the relationship with Unit and the doctor to give that trust. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's true. Uh, Michael continues. Unit's tiny toy tank. <laughs> I'm guessing we were supposed to believe this is an actual size tank, but the idea of a cash-strapped unit only affording a five-inch tank is way better. Thumbs up. (laughs) (laughs) Two thumbs up. (laughs) The doctor fighting the robot with marbles, his scarf, and hat. Thumbs up. We didn't even cover this scene. We didn't, no. (laughs) But I I like that. that Yeah, me too. He's trying everything and anything. And... The final bullet point we have here is Britain being the linchpin of the nuclear war safeguarding plan and Bagel's <laughs> foreigners line. You could write a thesis on how 1970s Britain saw its place in the world on this dialogue. Thumbs up. <laughs> there, there are definitely two, three, maybe seven tongues in cheek, I'm sure, during that entire exchange. I still don't know quite how it's meant to have been played. <laughs> And he gives this a summary of utterly ridiculous, laughable, shockingly naff on many levels and an absolute joy. More, please. <laughs> and the rating is 3.5 out of 5 poorly trained unit red shirts being squashed, bashed, smashed and vaporized by a giant wobbly plastic robot. That is an excellent rating. Michael, thank you so much. That is a brilliant, brilliant series of likes and moves. <laughs> thank you, Michael. It was great. Please follow Michael on Twitter. He is at bad underscore movie underscore club. And that is it. Holy moly. Oh, it is 1 a.m. It is 1 a.m. Let's wrap this up. People can follow you on Twitter. I'm at Jimmy the Who. <laughs> you can follow me as well. I'm at Ponkin. Next up, we have a new review, namely The Doctor, The Widow, and The Wardrobe. After that, we're going to go on with some classic Who with... The Ark in Space. Oh, fantastic. Excellent stuff. That's the... Oh, I just saw a screenshot of it. I remember this one. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this. Thank you so much for listening, ladies and gents. It's been a pleasure having you as our audience. Until the next time, rock on and cha-chao. See ya. 
did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. But I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Hey, Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash who back when. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at who back when. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit, listen to us on Stitcher, and head on over to our website, whobackwhen.com, where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives, and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, cha ciao. Who back when? Would you like a chili, baby?